particular person through their sports career, college, and then the world events, and then finally making it to the Olympics. Well, probably one of the most exciting Olympics was in 2000, when a young farm boy by the name of Rulon Ellis Gardner went to the Olympics and wrestled against Alexander Carolyn. There wasn't ever a more David and Goliath situation other than David and Goliath. So Gardner, reason why we like him is not only because he was an American, but he was born in Afton, Wyoming. Yeah. He's the son of Reed and Virginia Gardner and the last of nine children. Uh, His second great-grandfather was Archibald Gardner, who was one of the early settlers of Star Valley, Wyoming. Now, he attributes his great strength to the physical labor that he performed growing up and working on the family's dairy farm. He was engaged in Roman Greco wrestling, which is different from normal wrestling. Roman Greco wrestling is upper body strength. That's all it is, is upper body strength. But the Goliath that he was up against was amazing. And if you were watching the Olympics at that time, they were showing you this guy, this monster of a guy. And they showed you where he lived, and they showed you what just his daily life was like in surviving out in this log cabin in like four feet of snow, but also his uh, workouts in order to wrestle. Now, a little bit about him. He... uh, was in Greco-Roman wrestling, and he represented the Soviet Union. In fact, he did that for numerous years, 1988, 1992, 1996, and won gold medal. His name was called the Russian Bear. He was as big as a bear, or they called him Russian King Kong. They called him Alexander the Great, or they called him the Great Experiment. As each of these Olympics came, he was the one who would carry in the national flag for these Olympics. His career wrestling was 887 wins and only two losses, but they were only a loss by a point. But that was earlier. As he was approaching the 2000 Olympics, no point had been scored on him within the previous six years. He was undefeated in the world championships, having never lost a match. And then comes the Olympics and this David and Goliath confrontation. As you watched it, I guess in a way, uh, some people may think that it's a little boring because it's you don't take the leg takedowns and shoot the leg, and you're not so much on the mat. You're you're wrestling. Uh, up and it, and it looks like two bears dancing many times. But what was so exciting was, of course, we were all rooting for Rulon. And as you, as you went on, we were seeing that Rulon wasn't losing like the other opponents were. And then as it got close to the time limit, it looked like there was a possible chance that Rulon could win. Though the individual that he was wrestling against was a, was a, a behemoth. And at the very end, Rulon Gardner defeated the Russian bear who retired from wrestling at that moment. So it's just an incredible story. I bring that up because of wrestling. The word wrestling is in our text this morning. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And the word wrestle is also translated struggle. That's fine because you struggle when you wrestle. But it actually depicts the spiritual warfare that the believer has with Satan and the demonic forces that follow him. And it means hand-to-hand combat. Now, we already know that 
we're not talking about offensive moves that we use. We know we're going to be talking about the defensive pieces of the armor of God. We know that. So we're, we're not talking about doing anything outside of what the Bible asks us to do. But nevertheless, it's Paul himself who describes it as wrestling, pale, hand-to-hand combat. I bring that up because it's very important for us to learn this great important lesson that Paul chose to leave last and said, finally, last but not least, finally, this is the most important. The first thing it gives us is that it's a wake-up call that the Christian life is not a church picnic. Now, one of the things that we do discover is that we are blessed tremendously by the Lord, and we enjoy the fellowship, including those church picnics. But if there's any peace that we have, it's because of the spiritual warfare going on invisibly that we don't necessarily see. But we are told in these passages, verses 11 and 12, to know that it's going on and to know the wiles of the devil, the strategies of the devil. The Greek word is methodios, methods of Satan, who will like even the Roman uh, yeah, that's easy for you to say, the Greco-Roman wrestlers, you still have to know the weaknesses and the weak points and, and, and do all of that. Well, Satan knows our weakness. Of course, our big weakness is our sin nature and the sins that so easily beset us. And this is where he is going to continue to work on us and strategies and strategies that we may not have ever encountered before. This is the wrestling that we have to endure. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and I want to read again verses 11 and 12. We haven't gone very far because we are studying knowing your enemy, Satan. And this is part 2. Follow with me, verse 11, as I translate from the Greek. It is, you must... It's not, I hope you can do this and find the time. You must do this. You must clothe yourself with the full and complete armor of God in order to be able to stand firm against the stratagems of the devil. In other words, if we're going to stand firm against the devil and his schemes and his wiles, then this is what we have to do. We have to clothe ourselves with the armor of God. You must do this. And it's, again, in the aorist tense. You don't put it on and keep putting it on and pray it on every morning. Don't take it off. Don't ever take it off. You must put it on and keep it on once for all. Because we are talking about a very serious warfare. And then he's going to give us another reason why we need to do this. Not only is this going to help us to stand firm, and it's going to help us to stand firm against the schemes, the methodios of the devil, but then he's going to say, because or for our struggle wrestling is not, and that word not is emphatic in the Greek. In fact, it begins with the word not. You say, well, that doesn't sound like good English. It's not, but it's good Greek. It lets you know what the emphasis is. The emphasis is we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but it's flesh and blood that I see coming against me. Yeah, but it's not the ultimate source because the struggling of ours is not against flesh and blood, but rather against demonic rulers, against the demonic authorities against the world rulers of this darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. And so we will look a little bit more about the schemes of the devil and we will look at this hierarchy that is under Satan. But let's first go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you, We certainly are accustomed to blessing and peace, certainly tribulation and difficulty and even persecution. But Father, we're not always privy 
or we're not always alert to the spiritual warfare that's going on that allows us such peace at times. And yet at times there is great distress. There is great oppression. Father, this is how we are to be ready. And so, Lord, we ask you to teach us this morning more about the devil and then more about this hierarchy. But thank you for the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is over all. And thank you that there also is another hierarchy, and that's the hierarchy of your holy angels. Oh, Father, we commit ourselves to you in this very, very important sermon. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we take a look, and I want to go into this in detail, I want to look at some of these. Again, we come to the word struggle, and I use it as part of my introduction, but the word struggle here, one writes this, it was a contest between two in which each endeavors to throw the other, holding him down with his hand upon his neck. And of course, in some of those Roman games, it was unto the death. Um, And it was total domination. And that is the struggle that's going on. Is Satan going to have total domination of all believers on this earth? Well, Paul says that's one of the reasons why we have to put on the armor of God. So we're going to go through the armor of God piece by piece, but we're not there yet. I want to talk first and foremost about this flesh and blood. He's talking about human agency. So why would he have to say, if this is spiritual warfare, why would he have to say that it's not flesh and blood, human agency? Because many times this is where the influence comes to us. This is where we see it. This is where we feel it. This is where it affects us. And so whether you're talking about an enemy on a personal level or you're talking about an enemy of one country against ours, When we think of these things, there is these vast hierarchies of forces that are causing evil upon the world. When we think of the world, cosmos, we must think of cosmos as also it's the chaotic universe in which evil is rampant. Now, what about God? Is God here? Oh, you bet he is. And for a time, Satan is allowed to do this because this is part of his plan, God's plan. But ultimately, God is sovereign and will say, when this is over, it's done. In fact, Christ has already come and defeated Satan. But it's the idea that human agents may be involved in what we would call spiritual warfare, coming against us, going against God's word, his truth. But they're only involved in the sense that they are being influenced by Satan and his demonic forces. You know, it wouldn't be a bad idea at all to just stop right here and look at all of the times of things where people have come against you. And, and there are times when people do come down on you, rightly so, when you need to be corrected. Let's not forget that. And God orchestrates that. But there are times when it's so difficult uh, that we see this clearly is spiritual warfare. If he's going to try to keep someone from coming to Christ, if he's going to try to keep someone from growing, if he's going to try to keep peace and unity in a believing church, you better believe he's going to try to do it. And you better believe it's going to happen from people within, but ultimately sourced by Satan himself. Well, when we continue to go through verse 12, He wants to talk about this hierarchy. So there's going to be a hierarchy here. And there has been quite a bit of speculation over the years for he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. As he goes through this, he wants us to know that there is a battle. Now, he doesn't go into a whole lot of detail here. So it's not like we really don't want to be writing a book on spiritual warfare. Even if it's very dramatic, 
and all of a sudden we're making things up about demons and what they do and how this is done. Paul doesn't go into all of that. He just tells us there's, there's a hierarchy, that it's under Satan. And he tells us that it's involving darkness and wickedness. So be on the alert. But nevertheless, I, I just want to point out, so when we think of creation and the Lord Jesus Christ, who it says that he was involved in creation as well, so was the Holy Spirit, all three. When we look at this, we see some of the same words, rulers and authorities. I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, let's look at verses 15 and 16. Genesis 1.1 tells us that God the Father is the creator. Genesis 1.2 shows the creativity of the Holy Spirit. Here in Colossians 1.15, it shows us that Jesus Christ is also co-creator. In verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And of course, firstborn there doesn't mean that he was the first to be created. I know that it can mean that. But actually, what it can also mean in Jewish understanding is the firstborn is the one who gets the firstborn rights. And you remember Jacob and Esau? That, those rights got transferred. And there's various other times in the scriptures where the firstborn did not get the firstborn rights. Well, Jesus Christ is getting the firstborn rights even though he wasn't created, let alone created first. But he has the inheritance, the firstborn of all creation. Because he's the creator. You, you can't say that you can create all things and yet you yourself are created. What have you created yourself? Here in verse 16, it says, for by him, all things were created. Now that's enough. You wouldn't have to write any more, but he does. He says both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, he's repeating it. All things have been created through him and for him. So interesting, that last part were through him and for him. Through him is the laborer. For him is the architect. So he's both the architect and the laborer. But look at the word thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. At this point, it's well believed that we're talking about the angelic realm, that the angels were certainly created, and the angels were created in holiness. They were all perfect, and this is, this is Jesus Christ who is part of creating them. And so even at that point, there's rulers and principalities. There's a hierarchy. So there's a hierarchy among the angelic realms. Well, what about Satan? Well, Satan fell and sinned and took a third of the angels with him and they kept a hierarchy. So that's the difference. The difference is there is a hierarchy in the angelic realm, and some of them are called rulers, some of them are called principalities, some of them are called seraphim, some of them are called cherubim, some of them are called archangels. It's quite the study, angelology. But here we're showing that when Christ created the angels, he created all of them, all of them were without sin, and there was a hierarchy. But when Satan fell, he took a third, and there was still a hierarchy. And Paul is now going to tell us about that hierarchy. Now, just to show us here in this text that he's talking about the demonic hierarchy, we're not being confused with Colossians 1, 16, that it's the good angels or the holy angels. He calls these rulers and these forces, they're forces of darkness absent from the light. They are spiritual forces of wickedness. That's not God's holy angels. That's demons who have fallen. And this wickedness is even in the heavenly places. There's a spiritual war in heaven and there's a spiritual war on earth. Now, before we go into the hierarchy and we want to see this hierarchy for sure, I want to just mention about why Satan is in charge. Now, you remember when we talked about Satan last week, we said that it's very possible that he was the most beautiful and the number one angel. 
if not the number one, certainly one of them. But we find out that even Michael, the archangel, does not always wrestle with Satan, but comes to him and says, the Lord rebuke you. But we find out that after Satan fell, and of course, why did he fall? You remember that? Well, he fell because of his own pride, pride in his beauty, pride in his position. Sound familiar? Well, this is how he fell. And then disobeying God, there was violence involved. Disobeying God, there was the five I wills. I will be like the most high. I will ascend above all of the angels. And in this, he was cast out of heaven. And it says that he took a third of them with him. They fell too. They wanted to follow Satan rather than God. Now, what's interesting, as we said before, is those angels, those demons can never be saved. Jesus Christ did not die for angels. Jesus Christ did not become an angel. Jesus Christ became a man to die in the place of mankind. And by the way, let me just stop right here. And we're going to be talking about Satan, and it is somewhat of a frightful thing. But you have no power over Satan whatsoever if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. In fact, you are in the hands and the camp of Satan. But when you come to Christ, you are forgiven of your sins. You are given eternal life. You are put in the kingdom of the Son. You're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his Son to where you do have victory over the devil because of what Christ did for you. So that's just another reason why we should come to Christ if we've never trusted Christ. I mean, imagine having to deal with that all your life. But even more than that, what about after this life? Where are you going to spend eternity? If you have not trusted Christ, you are going to spend eternity where Satan will be, and that is going to be the lake of fire. That is going to be hell. This isn't here to scare anyone. This is here to yell, fire! This is here to yell, this is what we're coming to. And then you add on this hierarchy. So after Satan fell, maybe he could have at that point been cast into the lake of fire, and yet that wasn't God's will. God's will that he was allowed to have some control over this world. In fact, a lot of control over this world. And even when, when Christ came and died on the cross to destroy the works of the devil, and he did, he still allowed for a time, he is permitted for a time to be in charge of this world. Satan is in charge of this world. Now, God is sovereign and God is above him. All right, we're not saying that at all. We're not saying that that's not the case. That is the case. But he is allowed. In fact, it's Jesus who calls Satan Three times in the Gospel of John, the God of this world. Now, he knows who God is, his Father. He knows that his God is sovereign, his Father is sovereign. But for right now, what's going on in this world, this chaotic world, it's evil. Satan is called the God of this world, John 12, 13. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. He's the ruler of the world. He's the God of this world. Ephesians 2.2 2 called him the prince of the power of the air. And prince is a royal one. And of course, he's the most royal. But it says in Ephesians 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You know, those individuals who in their theology believe that we're going through the millennium now and that Satan is bound. Oh, how I wish that were true. How I wish that were true, that he was bound now. But he's not. We're not going through the millennium. What we are finding out is that Satan is alive and well and in control. And Paul gives us Ephesians 6 to put on the armor of God to stand firm against him. That's what the Bible teaches. And so though defeated by Christ, Satan is permitted to have temporary power and authority over the world 
It says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. So in this hierarchy, Satan is first. It's God's holy angels versus Satan's unholy angels, Satan's fallen angels, Satan's wicked and demonic beings. Well, with that in mind, let's go through this then. What are they? Well, there's at least four here. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Understand that. But against the rulers. And of course, all of these are going to be clarified by the wicked and darkness. So we're talking not about God's holy angels, but about the demonic angels. And this is a hierarchy. The word rulers is the Greek word arche. Now, if you've been going to our Greek class in Sunday school, you, you learned that RK is also the beginning. It means the beginning, it means the first, and or it means a ruler. And here it means rulers. They are rulers. It's the same word that's used in Colossians 1.16 when Jesus created all the realm of, of the angels, the holy angels. All angels were holy in the beginning, and there were some that were rulers in those. They were in charge. But here we have this hierarchy that some are at the top. Of course, they're under Satan, but there's this higher order of demonic hierarchy and rulers. And so they're going to be ruling. So again, Paul doesn't go into a great lot of detail. We We can add to it, maybe speculate a little bit, but we have to be careful. We have to be careful that books don't get written that are part dramatic and they fill in the rest just to make it sound good, but they end up leading people down a wrong road of how to do spiritual warfare against Satan and his demons. We have to be careful that we we understand these things. Now, some don't even think this is a some don't even think that this is a hierarchy at all. It just thinks it's just some of the influence. But the words are are are, are very very clear that it is somewhat of a hierarchy. So the rulers would be some of the tops and they're generals and, they're, and they're, they're giving out the orders that Satan is giving him and telling them where to go, who to go to, what to do next. You get this idea. And they give commands to lower angels. But we have another group here and that group is called against powers. Now, the word powers literally means authorities. So, yes, they have power. All angels have power. All angels, both good angels and evil angels, have power. And that power is more powerful than any man at any time. But we have Christ. We have his victory. We have his Holy Spirit. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so we're able to have victory. But these powers here are the idea of authority. So you have these rulers who could be called, and don't quote me, but something like generals. And then underneath them are lieutenants, and maybe these are the lieutenants, and they're also part, they've gone out into places, and they're they're giving the authoritative uh, decrees that should be done. It is a highly organized thing. Now, we don't know a whole lot about it, but it's, it's very... Very organized. This onslaught that's against us. This is why that author said this spiritual warfare is not a church picnic. These would have the authority to command other demonic ranks that are underneath them. And of course, they also could be involved in all of this. We even see that Peter uses the word and um, it talks about Uh, Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about these angelic realms. Well, the next one is demonic forces of darkness. Or to be specific, to read it clearly, it says, against the world forces of this darkness. Now, the word for world forces here, don't get confused that it's just a mere force just like we don't believe that the holy spirit is not a force he's a person he's called a person he's called he specifically emphatically in the greek and we come here and 
when we say forces, we're not just saying, well, this is the forces of evil. We just happen to call them demons. No, no, no. The word for forces would mean military forces, the people that you have behind it. And it, it comes out to be world rulers is what it means. And a world ruler is those who have strength to lay hold of something and to direct it. That's what these demonic powers are doing. Now, also, don't get confused that this is talking about world leaders. Now, world leaders may be, and we believe in some cases have been, influenced by Satan. We believe that. But we're not talking about that realm at this point. So we're not, it's not referring to world leaders here, but to demonic forces who are leaders over the world under the God of this world and are influencing world leaders and others in this world. One writes, there is no part of the globe to which their influence does not extend and where their dark rule does not show itself. And so we're, we're getting to see just kind of a hierarchy, kind of what they do. We don't know exactly what it is. Um, when, when the devil was tempting Christ, the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to, give it to whomever I wish. That's in Luke 4, verse 6. He is the God of this world. He is in charge of these dark forces, world forces, world rulers about in the world, following the commands of their lieutenants and generals under Satan who is in control of it all. And here, Satan wanted to give that to Christ. Well, he could give it away in the sense that it had been handed to him. It had been allowed for him to have it. And then we come to the, the last category. And I, I wish I could go into more detail. You know me, I'm a detailed guy. Uh, but th- as I read and the quotes that I've read, there isn't much more to say than what it says here. Just that it's a hierarchy. And this last group is called the spiritual forces, if you will, that's been supplied, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we have world forces, and now we have spiritual forces, and notice the location, in the heavenly places. Now all of them can be in the heavenly places, but it's making a distinction here. The last group was those demonic forces specifically fighting in the world, and those specific demonic spiritual forces doing fight in the heavenly realms. It is a universal battle going on between heaven and earth. And it includes heaven and earth. And this is what the author is trying to show us. And here, this wickedness that they're bringing out. And you could come up with every adjective of evil and wickedness, and you would be right about what they are doing. They are evil through and through. It's not like they're evil, but every now and then there's a ray of hope. There's a ray of light. Oh, that they'll do something good. That is not the case. The case is is that they are going to do whatever they can. So spiritual warfare in this hierarchy takes place where there are boots on the ground and there are boots in heaven, in this all-out universal spiritual war, and guess who the targets are? You and me. He is indeed against God. Satan is indeed against God. We talked about that last week. He is indeed against Christ. And we can look at how from infancy Satan wanted to kill Christ. We can look at how he wanted to thwart Christ by tempting him there in the wilderness. And if, if it wasn't trying to get at Christ, even trying to get him not to go to the cross, then even while Jesus was here on earth, he was trying to get at his disciples, at Jesus' disciples.
Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission. Isn't that interesting? Demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He's after you, Simon. He's got your number. And even Judas, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. That's Judas. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And so Satan was already trying to affect those who were his disciples, both believers, and he also keeps and attempts to keep the world and unbelievers under his palm. Now, I want to look at eventually, not at this moment, but we will look eventually at the relation to the world. Satan's activity with the world. Let's look at a few Bible verses on that. And when we're done with that, we're going to look at Satan's activity in relation to believers. And we will apply that as we finish up on this. But at this point, having learned the hierarchy, I'd like to give some examples of spiritual warfare. There are some in the Bible. The first one was read by Tim this morning. And let's turn there in our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. Now, we've just recently gone over this in our Wednesday night class on 2 Kings. And I will be honest with you, I, I thought that Kings was going to be not as exciting as it actually is turning out to be. So if you're not doing anything on Wednesday night and you'd like to grow in the Lord and you'd like to grow in your knowledge of Scripture, come on out because we're, we're going through these, these chapters in 2 Kings right now. Well, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, we have the situation of where King Ben-Hadad, king of Aram or Syria, was going out and was attacking Israel. Now, it wasn't an all-out war, but it was a little skirmish here and a little skirmish here. They were going out and raiding. They were going out and pillaging. But Israel did not know where they were going to attack first, and it was kind of a strategic thing until the Lord began to reveal to Elisha where he was going to attack next. And so Elisha, as the prophet of God, would go to King Joram and would tell him where they're going to attack next, which case they were able to go and fortify the city. And when they came against the city, they were defeated and they were not able to attack it and pillage it. Well, pretty soon, King Ben-Hadad got pretty upset. and He thought there was a traitor among them. Until he found out it was Elisha who was receiving divine revelation like a prophet does and proclaiming this to the king. And so he said, all right, let's go get him. Let's go get him. And he sent a great army to get him. Um, I probably said a great army because if he was thinking at all, he was thinking, well, he's going to know we're coming for him, which he does. He's going to know we're coming for him. And we don't want the little forces of Israel defending him. We want to have a bigger force. So, as it reads then in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 14, he, that would be King Ben-Hadad II, sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night, secretive, and surrounded the city. Now, when the attendant of the man of God. The man of God is the prophet here, Elisha, so-called quite often in the book of Kings. Now, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, alas. Now, I'm not sure what the Hebrew word is for alas, but I know it's important. And I know if you end up saying alas, it's like saying, woe is me, you're in trouble. Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And at this point, the attendant is looking around and probably about to say, In case you haven't noticed, it's just you and me. 
Well, Elisha wasn't talking about flesh and blood. He was talking about the Lord's spiritual army of angelic hierarchy and warriors. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, as we're looking at this, you only have a few options of of what or who that could be. You know, it's not like it could be, well, what if it's zombies? You know, people who died, but they're still walking around. I'm glad you're chuckling. Because <laughs> I still don't get the zombie thing, but that's okay. That's all right, you know. Um, it's not them, because that doesn't exist. Well, what about, what about dead people who are ghosts, who are unable to go from one realm to the other because some injustice happened to them or something? Maybe it's them. Nope. Nope, when you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell, your spirit, and your body will join you someday. That's all you have. That's according to the Bible. Why should I think of everything that Hollywood could imagine and put that into my theology? Why not just go with what the Bible is and tell Hollywood what the truth is or people who watch that? The only persons it could be would be angels and indeed We do see that this idea of horses and chariots of fire, we find that earlier. This is the same description of when Elijah was taken up to heaven by these horses of fire and chariots of fire. It's talking about the angelic world. Now, we are not sure exactly if they were on horses of fire and chariots of fire or if these names here are referring to the angel themselves. So... Uh, either way, we are talking about the angelic realm. Now, it doesn't say in this text that God's angels are going to fight Satan's angels. It doesn't say anything about that. It's possible, but it doesn't say it. But what we do find is that the spiritual warfare is invisible. It could be going on right now, but we just can't see it. But Paul's not asking us to see it. He's asking us to know about it. And so here is a glimpse into that invisible war where God's armies, and and this is good. This is a bit of encouragement. As we're talking about the hierarchy of demons, praise God that we can talk about the hierarchy of God's holy angels. They also are fighting on our behalf. And so we see this invisible war that is going on And because it's not flesh and blood, we don't see it. But we see some of the results. The next example that I'd like to look at is the one from Daniel. And I believe we did talk about this not too long ago. But I'd like you to turn to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. And the context is just as interesting in this. Daniel was a prophet, a man of God, and God would reveal many things to him. But some of the things that he revealed to Daniel, Daniel didn't understand. Now, here's a question real quick. How can a prophet write about that which he doesn't know? Because it's not his word. It's not his message. He's just the messenger. And there are times where it says that the prophets wanted to know, but they couldn't figure out even from their own writings as to the time when Christ would come, his first advent versus his second advent. They don't have to know. They just have to communicate it. That's what the inspiration of Scripture is. And so we don't have to get all kind of shaky about that. Here's a prophet saying, God, help me understand. You just gave me a revelation, but, and I can write it down, but I, I don't know what it means. And so God sends an angel with an answer, sends a messenger. But the messenger doesn't make it there right away. What happens? He is detained by spiritual warfare. He is detained by demonic forces. This angel, when he finally does come to Daniel in verse 12, he says, Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel. 
For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. God heard the prayer, and God is answering the prayer, sending an angel, but the angel can't make it right away. Verse 13, he tells them why. And it's not because of a snowstorm, not because of flight cancellation, but because of this. Verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now, some have said, well, what we're talking about here are the human kings and princes. But the thing is, is that we don't wrestle against angels, flesh and blood. I mean, we don't wrestle against the flesh and blood. The wrestling is against the angels. And this angel here isn't being wrestled against by kings or princes. This is angelic. And, of course, this is where one might get the idea of territorial demons, And to that point, we would at least agree. There seems to be an area that he's over. We don't know exactly what is done here, but there is this territorial demon here who is over Persia, and he's keeping God's messenger angel from making it to Daniel. And then Michael, we see right here some hierarchy. He's one of the chief priests. Oh, so there is a hierarchy. In fact, what we find out about Michael in various places, even from Daniel, is that he's called one of the chief priests, princes. He's called your prince, meaning he's Israel's prince. He's Israel's archangel. He's called the great prince in chapter 12 of Daniel. And in Jude, he is called the archangel, arch for ruler, the ruling angel. So we not only see hierarchy, but we also see limits of power in this spiritual warfare. And this demon of Persia, that seems to be the area that he was over, he was stopping him from giving an answer to prayer. Well, what what does it matter to him? Well, it matters a lot. Because first of all, he's an enemy of God. And second of all, he's an enemy of the word of God. And he would do everything in his power to keep the word of God from being explained and proclaimed. And then we drop down to verse 20 and 21. After he explains these things, he says in verse 20, then he said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. So now the prince of Greece is coming over to help this fight against this messenger. He says, however, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. And we believe Michael, the archangel, was especially over, is especially over Israel. That's why he's called your prince, Daniel being a Jew. Now, this is spiritual warfare that we don't see. Daniel didn't see it. This is spiritual warfare between God's holy angels and Satan's demonic angels or demons or unholy angels. But the one thing we don't see here is, Daniel, would you, would you rebuke these guys so that I can go on? He didn't say that to Daniel. Daniel doesn't even offer to do that. This is far above his power, far above human power. It had to be dealt with in the angelic realm of which we do not. So this whole idea of casting out demons and territorial demons and all of that, that's that's really, that's not biblical at all. Now, there may be territorial. They may be in charge of an area. We don't know a whole lot other than what this scanty few verses says. But at no time, Was Daniel asked to rebuke them, or did he even offer to rebuke them at all? We don't do that. Well, what do we do? We put on the armor of God. And then finally, there is another one. Well, there's several more, but this one is from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. This is about some of these spiritual forces of wickedness in 
the heavenly places. That's where this one seems to have taken place, in the heavenly places. The last one we saw seemed to have taken place on, they were world rulers, if you will. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. By the way, Revelation 12, 4, we find out that Satan was kicked out of heaven the first time and took a third of angels with him. Here, the, the, uh, the, the, there's going to be a fight between Michael and Satan, and we're going to see that he is going to be cast out of heaven for good. Let's go to verse 7. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven, heavenly places. Michael, the archangel, and his angels warring with the dragon. And of course, we know that the dragon is Satan because it clarifies it in verse 9. It says, the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. This is Satan and his angels. This is the second time he's being cast out. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, Genesis, who is called the devil, diabolos, diabolical, and Satan, the accuser, who deceives the whole world. That's what he does. He deceives the world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now that is future. That second casting out of heaven is future. And again, it's not as if Satan existed in heaven, but he could come and go with the permission of God. But after that, no more, no more. That's going to happen during the tribulation. And so we do see that there is a hierarchy. We do see that there is a war waging. It's against God. It's against Christ. But it's in the world and it's targeting believers. I just have a few moments to talk about what Satan is doing in relation to the world and to believers. But in a sense, Satan's activity among the world, he has the world. They're already in that camp. They're already in the camp of Satan. So all he has to do is keep them content with the things of the world. And of course, that's exactly what people in the world who don't know Christ want. So Satan not only rules the world, but he sends out these demons and these rulers and generals and forces to keep the people under his control. And you know, that, that great book, <coughs> a great book by C.S. Lewis. What's the, what's the name of that? Say that louder. Screwtape Letters, thank you. Um, talks about a little bit of a dramatic idea of how demons control those who are in the world, unbelievers. And then the terrible thing happens. His person that he was watching over becomes a Christian and they were all upset, but they said, that's okay, we could still get him. And he goes over some of the plans, the practical plans of how to keep uh, someone under the grips of Satan as he rules in this world. But the main thing that he does is he deceives the nations. That's what he does. Did you see it there in Revelation twelve nine? Satan who deceives the whole world. He deceives the world in anything that he can deceive the world. And when the world is superstitious he keeps it superstitious when the world seems to be scientific he'll use scientific deception in order i'm not saying he makes hocus pocus with science but what i'm saying is he'll use a spirit of scientific that we don't believe in the unseen world we don't believe in that stuff because we're too scientific and satan is yep got you right where i want you but it says and the great dragon was thrown down who deceives the whole world. That's what he does. And there's the deception of a lot of other things too. The deception of morality. And it's very easy for him because he works within the flesh of the world. The world wants these things. Worldliness, materialism, all of these things. And so he's got them. He also blinds the eyes of unbelievers to the gospel. First of all, he doesn't want them to hear the gospel. He will use interruptions 
to keep you from sharing the gospel. And sometimes he uses us as believers who we aren't bold enough to tell them the truth, though they need to hear it. But it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so he keeps them blinded. And it's the word of God and the Holy Spirit that shows them the light. But what we're really concerned with is how he conducts himself around believers. And we'll try to finish this quickly, and we may have to go back to it. But I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Now, this by no means is exhaustive, but this is a biblical understanding of one of the ways, or three of the ways, how Satan will attack believers. And it gives three categories here. It says, for all that is in the world, and here they are, number one, the lust of the flesh. Number two, the lust of the eyes. And number three, the boastful, boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And I believe that Satan is very much caught up in these categories. Now, how he does it is all practical, and it probably is different for each one of you. It depends on what our besetting sin is. It, just, it depends on what our besetting weakness is. It depends upon where he's trying to get us at the moment. Or, you know what? It could be that he's trying to keep you from coming to church because church is where you're going to get encouraged with other believers. You're going to be strengthened. It is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Now, the reason why it might take some time is because it's very interesting. If you look at the temptation of Eve, you can actually see these three areas in the temptation of Eve. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But what you also could do is you could go and, and, and go to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, and you could also identify these same three. Now, it wasn't in the same way. He wasn't trying to keep Jesus from eating an apple or whatever fruit it was. He wasn't trying to do that, but it was the same category. And these are the same categories that he will continue to, to, uh, to test us with. Now, let's, let's begin this, and let me just, um, oh, that's right, we have an extra hour. We're good, we're good. Just kidding, just kidding. Let's at least, let's at least look at the first one, and when we come back, we'll pick up the rest of these, but this is, this is very, very good. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. So we have Satan in the serpent speaking to her, questioning God. You remember we looked at this and we saw that he was attacking God. He attacks God's character. He attacks God's word. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, there you go. In your Bible study, that's what you're determining, what God said. Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruits of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. She added a little bit there, perhaps from Adam, but the gist is still there. The serpent called God a liar and said to her, you surely will not die. But this was specifically talking about spiritual death, and it also included physical death. Verse 5, for, the, for God knows that in the day you eat it from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Sound familiar? Satan said, I will be like God in Isaiah, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Notice that it was good for food, the lust of the flesh. Now, the flesh may be, hey, I'm hungry. 
not all things of the flesh are bad. It's good to eat. It's good to have a certain amount of calories every day. You know, we had a horse one time that we tried to cut back on the calories till we got it to zero. And it was working perfect till about two weeks he up and died. <laughs> anyway, but, but this, is, this, is, this, is, this is, so it's giving us an idea of flesh, of the cravings of the flesh. And of course, we have the sinful nature and then it, we see the cravings of the flesh, the sinful cravings of the flesh. And it can be certainly passed down. And this is one of the ways in which he tempts us. Now with Christ, let's go to Matthew chapter 4, we will conclude with this. Matthew chapter 4. We know that Satan came to tempt Jesus. And Jesus had been fasting. And it says in verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now that's a tough temptation after you haven't eaten for 40 days. I shared one time, I shared one time that I, uh, when I was in Bible college, I took the weekend off and I was, went up into the mountains and I, I was going to fast and seek, seek the Lord. <laughs> well, I did. And I got there Friday night and slept over. And Saturday, I was so hungry that I found a new meaning of the word fast. I literally ran fast off that mountain to get the nearest hamburger I could eat. But... He says, if you are the son of God. So it gets a little bit more technical now. He was questioning whether he was the son of God. But he could, if he was, he could easily turn the stones to bread and eat. And of course, the great answer, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Amen. Bam, what a victory. Amen. And that's why we study the word here. And that's why we memorize the word here. But this was an area, I believe, the lust of the flesh. It wasn't a sinful flesh here, but it was a craving of the flesh. And, of course, it goes beyond that for the craving of it. And and what do we think about in our day and age? Well, lust, epithumia, can mean unrestrained sinful passions of the flesh, of all kinds of immorality. And we see all kinds of immorality expressed today. And Satan can get us and can even get at believers And what are the things that are there? Well, the things that are there is pornography, and it's so obvious to everyone, so easy to obtain. You begin with that, and it is sin. But that is not where it stops, and that is not the only sin. And then it goes from acting out on it, and acting out on it outside of the bonds of marriage. And and this is sin. And and, and you, you would ask someone, well, how is it that you got into an affair? What happened? And the answer is going to be, well, some kind of justification that I needed, and you could insert, I needed the cravings of the flesh. Well, I guess Satan got you then. I guess Satan got you then, didn't he? But you could go on from there and all kinds of, of uh, lusts that we have. And, and you, could, you could look at it as lusts of material things. And, and we're, we're willing to lie in order to get and accumulate things. We have uh, lusts of power you know, you say, when you, what do these people want after they have all the money? Well, they want power then. And it's amazing to see what they'll do for that power. And, and you just watch these things. And by the way, it's not just in politics. Satan is not only trying to influence those in politics. He's influencing especially people equal in church who are believers. That's where he's trying to get us. And this is one of the areas. Now, I'll stop there next time. We'll talk about the lust of the eyes. We'll go to Eve, then Christ. We'll talk about then, thirdly, the boastful pride of life, Eve, and then where he tried to get Christ. But we'll also take a look at that even in your attempts to share the gospel, he will hinder that. And he is always accusing us before the Lord. He's the accuser of the brother. And he's always attempting us to fall, to make us fall. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober. We have a sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we'll talk more about that. But why does a lion roar right before he attacks? You've, 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 you've hidden yourself. Don't give yourself away. But he roars because it sends fear and terror into the hearts of his prey and they run and do not know which way but he's watching them where's the littlest where's the weakest and that's the one i'm going after and that's what satan is doing for us he scares us 
and he is prowling around and he sneaks up on us. We'll talk about this. So we need to continue on in this before we even move on to verse 13, which I think we will get into next week. But beloved, this is a serious thing. And it's, it's, it's so good that Paul writes about this. It's, it's good that he writes about it, how serious it is, how, how powerful it is, how we need to be strong, not in our own strength, but in the Lord's strength, and how we're going to have to put on the characteristics of the armor of God so we can stand fast and be faithful in the midst of the spiritual warfare. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time, and we ask, Father, that these things will not fall on our own deaf ears, but, Father, will cause us to be aware of this, not always to be fearful. We fear you, Lord. We trust in you, but to know about these things and to act accordingly. I also pray, Father, if there's anyone who's listening and doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that they would realize that they are a sinner, a sinner under the wrath of God, but coming to the Lord Jesus Christ who also took the wrath of God for us, placing their faith in him and him alone. Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I trust you as my savior. And at that moment, not only will they be forgiven and given eternal life, but they will be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.